Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today, we have another fantastic guest, Kevin Tambascio. I hope I didn't pronounce that incorrectly, Kevin, uh, but uh, Kevin's a fantastic guy, uh, and he's from my hometown back in Ohio, so you know, he gets extra points for that. But uh, <laughs> regardless, he, he is currently the Director of Cybersecurity Data and Application Protection for Cleveland Clinic. He's worked at great companies like Rockwell. He has over two decades of experience in software development and in cybersecurity. And he has a couple patents to his name uh, to add to the credentials here. And I, also, Kevin, I believe you're the President-Elect of the HIMSS Chapter. In uh, Northern Ohio, congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, so, and when he has spare time, and I don't know when he does, but when he does, uh, he likes to get involved with charities, and and he's working with uh, Velosano in raising funds for cancer research. Thank you, Kevin, for being here and uh, joining the show. Thanks, Manoj. Thanks for having me. Oh, really appreciate it. I mean, that's quite that's quite a resume you got there. I got to tell you. I mean, there, there's a lot of questions. I don't know how many we're going to be able to get through today, but I, I can tell you that everyone listening is going to have a keen interest because there's not one of us that unfortunately is not going to get sick and at some point is going to need health care. Right. It's just a fact of life. It's part of being human. So uh, and and unfortunately, healthcare has been in the news a lot. I, you know, a lot of health systems have been in the news. So uh, I'm sure you got the audience's uh, attention. But let's start with your work at Rockwell. You know, you look at Rockwell. That's industrial systems, and now you're in healthcare. How th those two worlds on the surface seem very different when it comes to cyber. But uh, how did that experience shape your, your view into healthcare cybersecurity? Yeah, thank you for the, the question. Um, yeah, I spent over 18 years at, at Rockwell, um, starting as a software developer. Um, and then I started to get into um, cybersecurity kind of well before we had any formal cybersecurity you know, programs or, or, um, or um, you, know, pro, um, you know, activities happening there. Um, we started to create uh, internal product cybersecurity governance at some point and started to build secure requirements, um, you know, pen testing of, of products, um, number of different activities aligned to really improve the security of those products before they hit the market. Um, if you're not familiar with Rockwell, they work, uh, they produce uh, products that work in the industrial control system yep. sector. Um, so many uh, industry verticals like pharmaceutical, uh, water and wastewater treatment, um, food and beverage uh, production, energy uh, production and distribution. Yep. So many different verticals that really uh, are impacted by cybersecurity um, and really, uh, you know, we worked with them to drive, you know, the improvements into into the product lines. Um, yeah, a lot of people, when I told them, hey, I'm going to the Cleveland Clinic, um, were, were really surprised. Like even uh, I have a family member who works at the clinic and she was like, why would you come here? Why, why is this important? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, uh, it really was eye opening. A lot of similarities, a lot of differences. Um, 
similarities, uh, you know, looking at um, how healthcare, you know, is a critical infrastructure. It is a critical industry, yes. just like power or food uh, beverage production uh, here in our country. Um, it's, uh, you know, lots of legacy systems, uh, you know, in both hospitals and industrial control systems, you have a, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it type mentality. You know, you have large yep. capital systems that are in place, um, very expensive to rip out and replace. Um, and so the prevailing mentality in many cases is going to be, hey, it's working. Let's keep it running. Uh, let's not touch it. Let's not have that risk of, of change um, here in the organization. So, you know, one question I had, mm -hmm. because you are familiar with ICS and DCS systems, um, and, and we've had this discussion on the show uh, a, a couple times, we know that from a threat intelligence perspective, the FSB in Russia and the GRU are actively working on ways of physically causing shall we say, uh, discrepancies in ICS and DCS systems, right? They're, they're really focused on that for obvious reasons. Have you seen something like that developing in the healthcare space? Do you see nation state actors wanting to look at disrupting or is it really just criminals right now that are, that are playing that role? Um, I think it's probably safe to say it's both um, at different levels. Um, certainly a lot of activity we see are more the financially motivated, um, you know, groups that are out there um, looking, uh, you know, as you know, the, the value of healthcare information, you know, um, I've seen estimates anywhere from 10 to 40 times as expensive on the on the black market, um, you know, compared oh, to yeah. credit cards and, and other types of uh, personal information. So the, the there's a credible amount of money that's being, you know, made by these groups who are targeting healthcare, trying to target the information due to the value of, of that information. So I think a lot of the threats we see are also, you know, are tied more towards those actors who are more financially motivated. Uh, but we have seen evidence of other uh, nation states involved in these uh, as well. Um, you know, we talk a lot as a team about sort of the geopolitical situations and how, <clears throat> you know, the general, you know, when conflicts arise uh, politically, how that can influence all, ver all, you know, participants in critical infrastructure. So not just healthcare, but other uh, verticals, you know, can also be affected um, by those types of activities that, are believed to be, you know, driven from, from nation state actors. So I'd say it's, it's, it's tough. It's attribution is always difficult, right? Yeah. Um, it's very difficult. One of the, it's it, not the most difficult thing. Yeah. But it's, it's safe to say a lot of financial motivation, certainly as political geopolitical things happen, you know, seeing effects in other industries uh, that likely are, are coming from nation state actors too. You know, there was a, I, and I haven't followed this case, but it came to my attention. Um, it was the the federal lawsuit that I think Merck and FedEx had filed against their insurance carriers for refusing to pay out uh, a claim on their cyber insurance policy. Mm -hmm. And that was a result of an, an action resulting from the Russians in Ukraine. And this was way back in 2014 when they annexed the Crimea. 
uh, and they were collateral damage. I mean, those both FedEx and Merck had offices there, and that became the conduit by which bad things came into their network. And in the case of Merck, they couldn't supply vaccines for quite some time, as it really disrupted their their operations physically. Right, and and their cyber insurance policy actually didn't cover it. They and now it's a lawsuit. I don't know what the final result of the lawsuit mm-hmm. is, but they, as far as the insurance company was concerned, that was the result of an act of war, and right. that's not covered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that difficulty to find attribution and and definitively say what happened here or who was behind it, right, leads to a lot of that ambiguity. You know, uh, so I think you'll continue to see those kind of situations because. How do you definitively prove it was Group A or this nation or or what have you? It's very very difficult to do. It, it is. It's very difficult to do. It takes a lot of resources to do it, and and certainly I know our law enforcement agencies, unless the cases of a magnitude where they have to get engaged, it, it's very difficult given the number of cyber attacks occurring on a daily basis. But one thing that comes up with that is that. As the business of healthcare, um, at the executive level, how much of a priority is spend on cybersecurity um, relative to everything else that budgets have to go towards? Sure. Uh, have, is there a growing awareness there or is, are things changing? What What are your thoughts, Kevin? Yeah, I, I think there certainly is growing awareness um, the the, you know, nobody wants to be in the news for the wrong reasons, uh, I think drives a lot of that awareness. Um, you know, every time there's a, a new situation where a healthcare system is, is, you know, impacted, I'm sure there's lots of conversations at other institutions saying, what is it going to take to make this never happen to us? How do we avoid ever being, you know, on the front page of the paper? as a result of, of something like this. Um, I recently read that a group called um, Cybersecurity Ventures was predicting about a 15% year-over-year increase in, in cyber spending by healthcare institutions. Um, and it totaled, they said, up to $125 billion over wow. from 2020 to 2025. Um, when I talk to peers at hospitals, um, certainly a lot of investment is happening um, and, uh, you know, certainly I think executives are, are seeing, you know, the, the, the impacts they are seeing, you know, operational downtime, they're seeing recovery costs that can far exceed, far exceed, you know, the spend that they might have to do from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, recently read some other stats about, you know, 25% of, of ransomware uh, hit institutions, you know, experience maybe a month of impact or it takes a month to recover, to fully recover from, wow. from one of these attacks. Um, 94% um, said that ransomware affected their ability to deliver care to their patients. Oh, I'm um, certain of that, yeah. So, you know, it's important that the executives understand that cybersecurity is patient safety. Um, just like in the control system world, cybersecurity is a factor in safety in general. Absolutely. You look at the safety of those types of systems. Um, and so, you know, it's important for them to really understand that connection, that these two are related. Um, just like in the industrial control systems, healthcare is all about availability. We need to have availability of care. Our institutions don't close. Their people are in need, you know, 24-7. Um, and so... Uh, if this can impact availability of care, our ability to deliver care at scale, 
um, it matters and it's important. And uh, it's really more of that patient safety issue than a, a cyber issue in that sense. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And, that, and I hope the, the folks who are in the industry that are listening uh, really kind of take that to heart because we've always seen, and, and this on our side, uh, as a cybersecurity firm, our, our evidence is anecdotal. Our survey is basically our customer base, but we always see this tension in, in healthcare in priority of spend, you know, a new MRI versus a, a new SIM. I'm just making this up, you know, yeah. but, or, or investment in a sock or whatever the case may be. It, sometimes the impression and, and of course, we're biased because we're in cybersecurity that that we get is that there's some these goals are somewhat orthogonal to each other. Right. The spend on specific healthcare instrumentation versus spend on, as you put it, patient safety. It, where's how how can we reconcile that or how can we help uh, the executives in the industry reconcile that? You gave some great yeah. stats, but are there some approaches that have worked for you that, that you've seen that people can use here? Um, no, I, I think, you know, those those two helping patients or investing in care and investing in cyber, um, you know, I, I personally don't view those as, as mutually exclusive in that sense. Um, uh, again, I think if you connect it to patient safety, if you if you go to the executive team and talk about firewalls and endpoint protection and all these great technologies and stuff that that we that we could bring if only you give us the money for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you're you're probably not going to go in there and 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 get their support, you know. But if you talk about how this could disrupt care, you talk about the impact of patient safety, you talk about how you know, patients are, are, are at their most vulnerable when they're in our care, right? And the last thing we Absolutely. want them to be thinking about is, is my data safe? Are these devices that are connected to me, are they safe, right? Am I safe, you know, being in this facility? Um, those are the last things we want them to really be, be worrying about. So I think you have to have a, a talented um, cybersecurity leadership team that can really translate the technical um, tools and things that we think about as, as cybersecurity professionals and, and find a way to show the value in, in language that they care about. Um, and again, here, you know, in, in probably every hospital, patient safety, availability of care, protection of information, uh, confidential information, of course, uh, is paramount to how we do. It's in paramount to our reputation. It's imperative to the the trust that we want to have with our patients. Um, and that trust can be lost instantly, you know, if we don't invest, if we don't protect uh, those things. So I think it takes, um, it's not really a technical discussion at that point. You have to have somebody who has the, the skills to really understand their concerns and, and bring that message to them in a way that is gonna resonate with them. Um, and hopefully you'll see, you know, successful funding and successful support uh, from the top down once you're able to achieve that. And, and you know what, that that is a little bit of a critique on our own colleagues in the cybersecurity industry. And I, and I do think they're guilty of this, is that quite often the, tech, the discussions turn into technology conversations or, or things that really business leaders are not going to find relatable. And, yeah. and, that, and, and that, is, that becomes a failure point then. Mm -hmm. um, 
it, yeah. that br- as you're describing, that bridge needs to be crossed. It needs to be yeah. made. That it's really think, not about the technology. It, yeah. It's about this. And and if we do yeah. this, like, well, I think it's know, also about maintaining it. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, crossing that bridge, but also how do you keep crossing that bridge? You know, so how, you know, we, we invest a lot into metrics and, and tracking results, right? Um, and so, you know, if, cause if you go back to the board in six months and say, Hey, we deployed endpoint protection, right? Um, okay, great. That's fine, I guess. Um, but you know, if you could say, Hey, you know, we've blocked 3 million emails, um, that had malicious attachments, or we've stopped, you know, 500 people from clicking on an attachment through our awareness training or something. Wow. Okay. I can actually start to see the impacts of that, you know, had one of those attachments gotten through, one of those attachments been clicked on, we could be in that situation where we're in the news, you know, for the wrong reasons. So I think, you know, connecting it to real outcomes um, is something that our leadership team takes really seriously. Um, Because again, you know, once you've gotten your initial resources, that's great. But then how do you keep and maintain that support? Uh, and I think you have to continue to find ways to measure your progress, not in tools, not in technology, but in real outcomes that you can share back. And I think to your point, that resonates with the business leaders and the executives, like, hey, I'm getting value from these dollars I'm spending. And it's probably true for every industry, right? Every, yeah, it's true for everyone. Right. Yeah. Every, you know, nothing really is healthcare specific here. You have to find out what that executive team cares about and how does your work, how does cybersecurity impact their work? Um, in many organizations and manufacturing, um, you know, availability of the plant is huge, you know, because downtime yeah. costs a lot of money. So how does cybersecurity help you maintain that plant up and running, right? That can be a motivator and, and help gain support. So it's really about understanding what's important to them and tailoring your message and then try to find ways to measuring your progress in that same language so that you continue to get that support. Well, so let's talk about some things specific to healthcare. We look at it as a highly regulated environment uh, with with a host of regulations that govern uh, the environment, HIPAA being the most obvious. But to the layperson, it seems like even in spite of that regulation, the safety of that data hasn't really come out uh, as a result of it. Uh, Is there a disconnect there in perception? Um, I think it's a great question. I, I think it, it comes down to that, that mindset of security and, and compliance in some ways. Um, you know, compliance may be more focused on, you know, what is the minimum set of requirements we need, you know, to, to earn that, that certification. Um, and some of these compliance frameworks also, you know, are, we have to always remember they're, they're very risk-based. Um, and so when they're risk-based, it allows you to potentially, document a shortcoming or accept risk of, of something that's that's not there in times. Um, you know, I kind of think about one, one of my other, you know, with Velisano, um, one of the things I do is I do a lot of road biking. Um, so I get on the road and ride my bike. And um, there's one house that always makes me kind of think about this, this question is it's this house that's on a corner. It's got two driveways on the corner okay. and they have a gate across each of the driveways, right? So the compliance says, hey, you know, we need to have, you know, a gate across, you know, your property. Yeah. Okay. So we've got a gate, right? 
The problem is there's no fence that connects the gates in any way, right? So you've got okay. a gate, you check a box for compliance, you have a gate, right? You don't have a fence or you maybe, you know, maybe you have like guard dogs or maybe you have some other control, <laughs> but, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, it, it looks like you're not secure in that sense. So I it's kind of reminded of that example as I, I think about this, uh, this question. Um, I think there's also a lot of, um, you know, thought to where, you know, compliance frameworks and regulations are, are great, but the threat landscape just changes so fast. You know, yes. new attacks happening, you know, tactics and techniques are changing uh, so frequently. Um, you know, it's it's hard to keep up in that case. You know, some of these compliance frameworks, you know, you're getting assessed every couple of years. Um, and so, you know, how does that environment change in the course of two years? I mean, that's two years of a lifetime, you know, when it comes, you know, to cybersecurity, as we uh, oh. as we all know. Um, so I also think... Um, you know, uh, you know, in terms of like why people, you know, are still getting impacted too. Um, you know, a lot of cybersecurity controls, you know, it's hard to stop the people aspect of cybersecurity. It's hard to, you know, stop, you know, insider risk and social engineering and some of the things right. that are able to get around the protections you have in place in many cases. Um, That's so I think a lot of things kind of lead up to that fact. Um, I think a lot of Healthcare institutions are doing a great job uh, at bolstering um, cybersecurity, and there's no doubt that there is a big role for these regulations, you know, to play. Um, yeah, I think there's also a lot of work to, you know, validate the environment and make sure that, you know, controls are working uh, and the controls are producing value and they're defending against the threats that you expect to see there. Now, is is there a is this where a role of a purple or red team can come into play to really, you know, you look at regulations, they're kind of based on a, a rear view looking landscape, right? Of what the right. threats were, but, but uh, the red slash purple teams, that's ingenuity can come into play there potentially, or what are your thoughts on their, their role in this ever changing landscape? Yeah, so so just before I took this job, um, uh, I was um, leading our uh, purple team and red team uh, efforts um, at the Cleveland Clinic here. Um, we we built a program to really with the the mindset of how do we how do we validate the environment? Um, how do we validate okay. the controls are working? Because this is an incredibly complex institution. And, and we have, you know, a, a variety of different controls that really all have to kind of work together um, to give a picture of health of the organization, a picture of our defenses. Um, yep. So we, we set out to, um, you know, take a group of, of people to, you know, look at some of the most realistic threats that we expect to see in the environment. Uh, we came up with a way to kind of stratify the different threat actors based on if they we feel they're a direct threat to us or maybe just a direct threat to the healthcare industry. And we would take some time to study what are the tactics and techniques they're using? You know, are they using malware delivered through email? Are they, you know, trying to directly attack the infrastructure of, of the victim there? Um, and so we started to kind of come up with a backlog of different scenarios we wanted to try. Um, in some cases, we were using off-the-shelf tools. In some cases, we were developing, you know, some stuff to try to get around our endpoint controls in the same way that a threat actor would do. 
Um, and we were actually able to, to test out these scenarios in a, in a safe way. Um, we, we really used it to try and um, drive continuous improvement here. So how can we get better as an institution? How can our defenses be improved? What gaps do we have? Um, we were able to make a lot of defensive improvements through that, that work. Um, and really, you know, a lot of tuning of controls or, or, you know, maybe we, you know, didn't have a feature turned on or maybe, you know, we needed a better option over here, you know, for something. Um, it led to a lot of really good insights, you know, to help operationalize and practice the, the, both the people, the process and the technology that make up your, your defensive capabilities. Um, it also helped us answer questions from our, our leadership. Um, it wasn't uncommon for them to see some news article over the weekend, you know, that said, sure. hey, you know, APT29 is doing this, right? And they, right. they come in Monday morning like, hey, you know, should we be worried about this thing, <laughs> right? There's a new threat or do we need to be worried about it? And what we were able to do over time is kind of put our results into the MITRE ATT&CK framework and start to be able to characterize like, well, APT29 is using these tactics and techniques. We've already tested these techniques. We've, we've actually run real tests against our environment. And yeah, here's how we it. fared. Here's our results. Um, and then be able to show, you know, we have confidence that we can stop this thing. Or maybe we have some gaps we need to go fill quickly here. Um, so having that real world validation, that real world data uh, was so helpful uh, and continues to be helpful. Um, since I moved on, the program's continuing. Um, but just to have real data about how our tools work and how our people and processes work um, is really uh, invaluable. So I feel like it's it's a very, um, and I've, I've done some past presentations on this too, just the value of like truly validating the environment. You know, it's, it's great to get a cybersecurity control in place, um, but just bringing it into the organization is, is really just the first step. Um, how do you operationalize it? How do you build processes around it? How do you make sure information is going to the defensive team? Um, how do we practice the attacks and make sure those tools are detecting the things they should be or preventing the tools or preventing the situations? How do we know that the defense team is going to react in the way we want them to react, right? So it, it definitely um, provided a, a framework of how do we bring in controls and, and really make sure that they're uh, they're ready for prime time. See, uh, right there was worth the price of admission to this podcast. I mean, you you, you pretty much laid out the ABCs, the fundamentals uh, and, and the value uh, of what you were doing with the with the red and purple teams in, in the environment. It, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, and it's refreshing to hear that the, the scenarios are actually undergoing real world testing. Uh, so it's not just a check in the box on the control. It's actually a validation that the control has an effectiveness to it. And, and mm -hmm. perhaps more importantly, as you mentioned, the policies that are built around it. And I would imagine that at some point you would have to bring in all the end users into the equation, right? Because a policy without their support really isn't very effective per se, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Were there, um, what was there an approach you used to get the knowledge out to the broader community or, or trying to get that culture of cybersecurity that we want you to do A, B, and C when, when you're working now? Uh, and this is not meant to be a hindrance. Mm -hmm. It is 
for everyone's benefit here? Sure. Um, yeah, we, we have a, a training platform, you know, that we do. We have annual cybersecurity training, just like many different um, companies um, do. Um, certainly, uh, you know, we do regular, you know, testing of our employees with, you know, phishing tests and things and look for uh, ways to improve uh, and, and, and raise awareness of the threats that are there. Um, you know, just uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at uh, a, uh, like a birthday party my son was at and um, it, was it happened to be some of the uh, other uh, people at the table, you know, were nurses at, at Clinton Clinic. Um, and, uh, you know, I mentioned, oh, I work there too. And, you know, I work in cybersecurity and, you know, they had asked me about, um, uh, the, you know, like, you know, your personal, why can't we access personal email, like Gmail and stuff like that. And so I started yeah. talking about the threats, you know, how attachments could get in and you bypass our controls and, and, and they just had no idea what I was talking about. Like just the concepts and stuff I was talking about were just so you know foreign to them uh, at some level, and so it, it really kind of highlights the fact that like you know I like to joke that like people in cyber are not normal people in that sense. Like we're so we're so <laughs> numb, you know. We're, we see and breathe this stuff every day, right? We yep. see cyber stuff. We see the bad news. We see all the threat actors. But normal people do not see all of this. And so they, you know, you have to work hard to really help them understand that, like, stuff's happening, you know, that we're not making this up. Like, there are real attacks happening and stuff because normal, quote unquote, normal people don't see this stuff happening. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to connect, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, people still being most times the most vulnerable part of, of an organization Yes. And just really connect with them and, and share stories and, you know, have awareness activities in your organization, have a cybersecurity week or something, and you have events to raise awareness and stuff on top of your training and some of those kind of things. Um, you know, and I think kind of like to the executive audience, you know, like what's, what's um, you know, what's important to a, a clinician, Right. So again, like, let's not talk to our nurses about firewalls and antivirus right. stuff, right? But let's let's talk about like, you know, ransomware and how it could affect operations. How could it affect patient care, right? Something that they can relate to and do understand and obviously care a lot about. Um, and so, you know, again, making sure that training is approachable, um, that they can understand it, that they see, you know, we have to share some of these stories, not in the the world's burning kind of mode or, or, you know, the, you right. know, we've all seen the presentations of how yep. all the world's burning and everything. Right. So, but you know, there is a reasonable approach you can take to kind of share some, some of that uh, in a way that's, that's makes an impact to them. I mean, certainly the nurses I was talking to at the birthday party, they, uh, you know, walked away with like, oh, okay, it is important to have complex passwords. It is important to not click on stuff. Right? So I gotta, can you share anecdotally a, a story or two real quick that, that really resonated with them? Um, I mean, just, just talking in general about how these attacks originate, I think, you know, that, you know, you could be sort of innocently just browsing, you know, your email and you download something and, and you don't think twice about it and you might open it up on like a, 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 a you know, a work asset, right? Um, 
I think uh, I think I think there's there is a, a thought that like you know the way people get in is from the outside or some kind of advanced attack or something like that. The the idea that somebody could be sort of you know inadvertently just kind of almost innocently click on something and it starts a major effort, major incident in that sense. Um, I think was was the eye opening part. You know, kind of realizing how easy it is. Um, you know, that this isn't, you know, again, this isn't um, necessarily hard to carry out some of these things. You know, you're sending malware out through emails, through automated mechanisms, through stolen botnets and stuff. It's not, you know, as we've seen in the industry, there's ransomware groups for hire. There's there's open source examples or open source toolkits or, or code that a ransomware organization can buy. Um you know, the bar has continued to get lower and lower, you know, for, for managing and issuing these campaigns. And so I think the average person doesn't realize how prevalent this is, how easy, relatively easy it is uh, for them to, you know, unknowingly being a part of, uh, you know, uh, a, you know, an incident like that. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about some things that are not so easy to do. I, so when we talk about embedded systems, which is something that you're an expert on here and there's a lot of them right and a lot of these systems when they were built were not built with security as a as a prime factor in their relative design points how big a threat are they first of all and how does one go about managing this sure um I think how big of a threat are they? Um, you know, certainly, um, you know, we are seeing, you know, impacts um, to, you know, seeing the attacks that are affecting, um, you know, these types of, of devices, you know, in, you know, from talking to peers and others uh, in the industry, though, um, you know, a lot of these systems, a lot of operational technology systems like medical devices and control systems and stuff, a lot of times they are talking back to standard IT infrastructure or, you know, standard, you know, servers and things that just like any other server that might be, you know, sitting in your uh, environment. So, you know, certainly it's important to look at the whole picture and where, you know, you have the most risk, um, but also recognizing that a lot of times the threats to operational technology systems can be the more IT centric pieces of that. Um, the servers that are supporting medical devices next to the servers that are supporting email could both be susceptible to ransomware. Um, Human interfaces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, you know, in terms of what we do about it, um, you know, I think, you know, vendors are doing a lot of good things. There's a lot of um, you know, industry standards that have come about, um, you know, IEC 62443 in the industrial control space was really, was, was put together to drive um, improvements to devices, improvements to system integrators, you know, improvements to operators and how they operate and maintain the cybersecurity quality and, and safety of a, of a system. Um, you have, uh, you know, Biden's executive order of last year, um, you know, right. to start incorporating cybersecurity measures into IoT and medical devices and things. Um, I think the language was anything the federal government buys. Well, it turns out the VA is a really big buyer of medical devices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those activities are going to also start to really flow into, you know, the medical device space as well. 
so I think it, it really is a, a partnership between vendors and, and end users uh, like us. Um, vendors have to do their part. They have to engineer the products with cybersecurity in mind. Uh, they need their teams and their processes to account for cybersecurity, like doing secure design reviews and secure um, you know, threat modeling and stuff to look at the threats that device or that system is, is exposed to. Um, and they have to document a lot of things for us. They have to, you know, I view them as enabling us to then kind of take ownership of the cybersecurity. In order to do that, we have to understand the attack surface of these systems. We have to understand the patching requirements. We have to understand, you know, how to set up accounts, you know, securely. How do we connect it securely to our infrastructure? How do we, can we, can we segment the network where that system is into something else? So for us to take ownership and drive security and maintain the level of security, you know, it's really that vendor has to enable us, you know, to be able to, to do that. Um, but at the same time, we could buy the most secure product in the world. And if we turn on risky features, if we don't, sure. you know, put it uh, into our environment in a, in a secure manner, we've undone all the work that they've done. So it's really a partnership uh, between the product vendors um, system integrators and, and operators that need to have a role here. Um, and each of us has to enable uh, the next group uh, to take responsibility for security. Is there is there a threat from foreign chip manufacturers whose subsystems are getting embedded in these products? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been instances of, um, you know, compromised uh, devices, compromised chips. Um, you know, it's a it's a big problem to look at the authenticity of of these components. Um, and it's in, these devices are incredibly complex. I mean, the the hardware bill of materials for these devices can be hundreds or thousands of individual components. Oh, I'm sure. Um, Right. And, and just being able to account for the security of each of those components, knowing that each of those components probably has its own hardware bill of materials and software bill of materials becomes an incredibly complex problem to uh, identify and, and sort of vet every component in a, in a system like that. What um, about using um, open source libraries in these systems i'm sure i i mean i've never programmed a a, a infusion pump but mm -hmm. i would imagine that it's got open source components in it no one's building everything from scratch um, is there inherent risks that are coming out of that arena or is that not so much um yeah I, I, absolutely um i think you know any any product out there today is you know think about the devices and the systems that are running embedded linux right think of the oh tons the of them thousands of open source developers who've had a hand in some component of linux right uh speaking of linux in more general sense not the kernel but just you know how many people how many components and how many things are in there um it's incredibly complex um you know i i, I think in my experience you know sometimes you know, 30, you know, 20, 30% could be code that the vendor's written and they've, uh, you know, built on top of a Linux device or, or some other type of embedded or real-time operating system. And, uh, you know, you're, you're taking the word of the vendor or you're, you have to find a way to trust the open source that you're bringing in because whether it's intentional or not, 
the customer is going to look at that device as having your name on it. And whether yes. you wrote the code or whether you brought in some open source library, um, I mean, think about Heartbleed a few years ago, several years ago, maybe. Sure. Um, you know, the open SSL library, right? That's a component. A lot of devices have that component inside their, their product. Um, and, uh, you know, whether you wrote the code or not, you're putting your mark, your brand, your reputation on the device. Um, and it has that, you have that responsibility then. So it's, it's very important that, um, you know, when you're engineering these products and you think about the components coming in, that you, you have processes and procedures in place to really account for the risk of everything. The code you're writing, the code that your employees are writing, if you're contracting the code out to a third party, are they right. building the product in a way that's going to represent your standards, right? Yep. Um, and then anything you bring in, whether it's commercial, whether it's open source, how do you vet it? How do you, you know, uh, make sure that it's at the level of quality you're looking for? Because ultimately, you're responsible for what happens uh, with that product from a security perspective. Customer doesn't care. They're not going to. They're not going to say, "Oh, that's just the open source piece." You know, it's like, no, you. They bought a widget from you. You are responsible for it, and whether it's your fault or not. So uh, I guess is there? Uh, do our laws need an update or is there some government policy things that need to come into play here? Because it's impossible to secure everything. It, it's just not realistic. Right? Sure. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think there's, um, there, there's certainly some movement starting to, to happen there. Um, you know, uh, you know, the executive order, there's a couple other legislative activities that seem to be brewing to, you know, really kind of address concerns, especially in the medical device um, realm, you know, to ensure that at least, you know, some basic things, you know, can be put into these devices, some basic, you know, I'll call it cybersecurity hygiene that can be put into these things, you know, every device, you know, no, no device should have a hard-coded password that you can't change, right? Effectively a backdoor into the device. Um, you know, you should be able to, to have services off by default and have that attack surface as uh, small as possible. You know, signed firmware. How do we guarantee the software running in these devices is authentic? Um, I was going to ask you that question, yeah, actually. I, I think I, they, I, there, if you look across different regulations and different, you know, all, all these different things that are happening, there's certainly a lot of common angles to them, right? Some common principles that... You know, we can all agree are, are good things to have in these devices. Um, you know, and well, you look at the aircraft, yeah. you look at the aviation industry, and even today, from what I am, I hope my data is still accurate, but I, I know for even a couple of years ago, engine control system software, you could not update online. It was still delivered on disks. Mm -hmm. And that was because of ensuring the authenticity of that code. They right. knew what was being versus if it was updated by some cloud server, the OEMs couldn't guarantee that that is genuine. Right. Right. So uh, you're you're absolutely right. I, I think uh, though your attack surface is so big, it's mind boggling to me. The number of devices, the number of integrations that you folks have. It, it's just impossible to seal every single thing. There, there has to be a level of risk that there's no such thing as 100% cybersecurity, I guess. Sure. And, and maybe we're, 
I'm advocating personally for is that there has to be some leeway because it's just not real to say that we're going to have zero risk. Sure. Yeah, I I think it comes down to really understanding the threats. Um, I know it, it, you know, it kind of sounds cliche because everyone says this, right? But it's understanding your threats, understanding your, your assets, your asset inventory. And both of those are very difficult to kind of wrap your arms around and, and understand. Um, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of great resources out there. Um, the uh, Health ISAC, um, okay. each ISAC organization, you know, can provide information to healthcare organizations around the threats that we, you know, face here. Um, and, and really, that's when you can start to kind of orient your uh, uh, approach, you know, to, to security here. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, without understanding that everything feels like a priority, you know, everything feels like a good thing to do. Um, but uh, you, you start to get to another level of maturity when you start to realize, like, these are the top three things, you know, maybe email is our most important or or everyone in the industry is getting attacked through email. Email is the most important thing we should focus on first. Um, So you can give direction to your teams. You can spend uh, in that way. Uh, You have to have some way to provide priorities or else we all have, you know, 15 number one priorities on our plate. Sure. Um, You have to have that something that's guiding you, uh, whether it's you know, the threats, if it's if it's um, more of a general risk, you know, approach in that sense. Um, but it's very important to have something that's that's guiding you there. Speaking of guiding you, we're coming to the end here. I know we haven't hit all the questions here, but I did want to give you a chance. I know uh, Velosano seems like something that is they're very important to you. you. You are engaged with them in fundraising. Tell us a little bit about them. And also, please tell us about other things you're involved with and would like to our listeners to to know about and and we'll put them in the show notes as well if you have links and things that you'd like to share sounds great um yeah a couple couple thoughts there um you know velsano is a a fundraiser uh that the cleveland clinic um puts on uh we raise money for our uh, cancer research um to date over 30 million dollars have been has been raised uh for uh, they, um, they call them seed grants that really sort of help us do some initial research, um, okay. which then they can take the results of that initial research and apply for state and federal grants that kind of um, amplify, you know, the initial investment, the initial grant that we're, we're able to to raise for them. Um, we just had uh, our, uh, our annual um, bike ride um, in uh, back in September. Um, so uh, to date, over $3 million were raised for this year, um, and 100% of that money does go to our uh, cancer research at our institute. Excellent. Um, it's, a, it's a great event from a cycling perspective. Um, if you're in the Cleveland area, I definitely recommend um, checking it out uh, and being a participant here. Um, there's also ways to do virtual fundraising and, and be able to support um, you know, members or, or people who are, who are doing it. Um, you know, cancer, unfortunately, it affects all of us. Um, I, everyone's got a story. You know, I lost my grandfather in 1995. So sorry um, to hear that. And, and had, you know, other friends and family members affected. Um, and so it's, it's unfortunately, you know, and, and I had team members this year that, you know, had, had far worse losses, uh, far more impacts uh, due to cancer. So unfortunately, we all have these stories. We all know somebody yes. uh, who, is, who is impacted here. 
Um, and so uh, to me, it's a, it's a very personal cause. Um, it's great to give back to my institution and, and all the great work that our uh, caregivers do in that space. Fantastic. Now, do you have any talks coming up or any appearances that you're going to be doing? Uh, at this time, I don't have anything planned. Um, I don't have any talks planned at the moment, um, but uh, have been a past participant of, of the National Hymns event um, okay. that's coming up in April of uh, uh, 2023. It's tough to talk about 2023 already, but uh, yeah, here we right are, there. right? Uh, and so uh, the National Hymns event will be in April uh, 2023 in Chicago this year. Um, last year, uh, I went with one of my uh, one of my uh, team members, and we talked about purple teaming and healthcare, uh, kind of a, a longer version of what we just talked about, um, and had some really great conversation and dialogue uh, with the audience uh, about that. Fantastic. Well, uh, Kevin, we're at the end of the show here, but thank you so much. It's been a very enlightening conversation. Appreciate you taking a time out of your busy day to uh, share your knowledge with us here. Well, thanks, Manoj, for having me. Uh, it's great to be a part of this podcast. Thank you.